welcome, or welcome back. You've tuned in to episode 16 of season 1 of the Primrose Chronicles, and I'm hopeful that you'll find these next two episodes releasing a myriad of memories, if not about the Indiana State Fair, maybe the fair where you grew up. Certainly every fair had its distinctions, each reflective of their particular state's life and production. And the Hoosier State's version had its own distinctive features. But for the most part, you can insert about any state's name in this title and this account and accurately identify its two-week schedule. Annually, late summer brought in many communities the culmination of countywide efforts and competitions in the culinary arts, domestic skills, animal husbandry, and basically many of the routine tasks of rural life to be determined at a special event where judges chose the best of county. The winners in dozens of different contests like that across the state were then invited to join the other county victors in the capital city of the state at the state fairgrounds for a few days of friendly comparison to again display their prize project, whether it was baked, handmade, or raised from birth to possibly become not just the county's best, but the best in the whole darn state. In the case of the Hoosier State, the 250-acre fairgrounds on the northeast side of Indianapolis had been home for these activities since the end of the 19th century, and the residents on the south end of Primrose Avenue were a mere two blocks from that annual spectacle that paid tribute to all things done and produced on the farm, For most families on that nearby avenue, this was not to be missed. And I sure didn't. From the time we moved into the neighborhood during my second grade year until I went away to college and had to report before the fair got underway, late August through Labor Day weekend found me one day or more checking out all the Indiana State Fair had to offer for that year. And those offerings increased in my awareness as I saw exhibits and demonstrations and the campus in general, first accompanying my parents and younger siblings, even though those were years that there was some form of censorship in a variety of forms, and it really is the subject of that installment. It was followed in short order by another recorded chapter in which I admit the escapades of my junior high buddies and Off of our figurative leashes and free to explore all corners of the great expanse known as the fairgrounds, we found trouble. Today is given in such a manner to offer the lay of the land of the fairgrounds and to allow you to feel a little sorry for the limited way that I had to view the fair traveling those several years with the young clan. In the family years, our time for a day at the fair meant that we walked from our house on Primrose usually with other families from our block, so we all had age-appropriate partners. Even mom and dad had other parents to commiserate with along the way. This, along with a caravan of strollers, as well as a gaggle of kids, none of whom thought the convoy was moving fast enough, so it made for a very interesting image of travelers toward the gate on 42nd Street. Slowing the procession was probably also created by the need to pull a wagon, filled with a cooler of drinks and pre-made sandwiches to enjoy in the picnic shelter at the appropriate time, since feeding a family of five, six, or seven, depending upon the year, could be a real budget buster. That cavalcade moved on to Ralston and traveled down the two blocks that led to the pedestrian gate. 
This experience was usually planned for Family Day in the fair schedule, which allowed for the greatest discount for children and also maybe a pay-one-price admission opportunity. Now, the fair officials knew what they were doing. They get their money once inside. And there was usually a plan for seeing the fair. Never could all the families agree on what they did and didn't want to see, so eventually they would split up for the rest of the time with some leaving early because of tired kids and some because they were tired of their kids, but it usually meant that as they went through the gate, they went through together. Upon entering, straight ahead you could see the backstretch of the one-mile dirt oval that hosted harness racing and beginning in the 60s an Indy car race called the Hoosier 100. But that was in the distance from the entrance, and immediately to the right and left before it were lawns and tents filled with various farm equipment items. John Deere, International Harvester, they had the two biggest displays. And once among those displays, the dads took turns lifting each kid onto the seat of the tractors and the like. These were bright and shiny, and nothing like my Uncle Bob's collection that he had down on his farm. These were brand new, and obviously beckoning the farmers in attendance to add to their agricultural debt. Just beyond the farm equipment, there was a section devoted to FFA and 4-H projects. Each had been crowned champion in their various 92 counties, Now they were on display statewide and giving their creators 15 minutes or two weeks of fame. Those same reports, displays, and experiments also served as an object lesson to touring families by which parents could speak to what could be done if their child would only apply themselves both at home and at school. That was another reminder that the new school year was right around the corner. Then, moving from these reminders of our own potential wasted youth by comparison, families, still together, strolled down to the Indiana Department of Forestry and Natural Resources Pavilion. It was a permanent open-air display close to the chain link fence on 42nd Street with enclosures for various wild animals that were indigenous to Indiana. The cages were empty most of the year, but for the fair, representative specimens were brought in just like a zoo placed in the cages, and cared for by the forestry personnel. Those same officers, in uniform, would bring young or newborn critters out among the visitors so they could see them up close or pet them and even hold them. There was also a small building with glass enclosures for the reptiles of Indiana. Snakes and turtles, poisonous and snapping, those could be encountered by the guests only by tapping on the glass. And as the kids got older... Some got bolder, and they climbed up the 125 steps to the top of the 110-foot fire tower that was the centerpiece of that pavilion. On a few occasions, upon getting a glimpse of their surroundings for the first time from an open-air platform over 10 stories in the air, a previously fearless child froze and wouldn't descend. At that point, A bold parent would have to ascend the structure and carry the child back down to the safe terra firma below. A couple of times, a parent, themselves suffering from acrophobia, would have to sheepishly seek out a forest ranger who would then bound up the steps for the rescue. Our path then took us around to the first of a long line of animal shelters, the barns that were housing the FHA and 4-H animal stock. 
Often in there, the young people, in their cowboy hats, plaid shirts, and boots, were willing to rub shoulders with the city slickers in the aisles, talking willingly and rapidly about their raised-from-birth animals. In a few days, the animal would be judged against the rigorous standards of this perfect specimen. The young person would be judged for their showmanship of said animal, and all would happen before they parted ways at the end of the fair sale. Some returning back to the farm, some to new barns, some to the slaughterhouse. And these kids bragged about their projects using first names and lovingly stroking their heads, most realizing that they would be parting ways with the one that had been an integral part of their lives for at least the last six months. During the multiple animal barns, be they swine, cow, horse, lamb, or poultry, usually meant a quick pass-through from one end to the other, seldom no more than one row of the multiple pins, little or no pause to view the specimens up close and personal, and you really couldn't blame the moms for that choice. They would be the ones who would have to clean off the shoes of the children who had stepped where they shouldn't have, regardless of the warnings given before moving into the collection of stalls and styes, pins or coops. The instruction, watch where you step. Also, it provided the shortest time to deal with the younger kids who had yet to learn how to breathe through their mouths and thus complained vehemently about that awful smell. Dad offered his observation that just in the telling warranted keeping a closer eye on the younger young'uns because he always spoke of how once the hogs had eaten a little boy who had fallen into the pig pen down in Brazil, Indiana, where his family was from. That always caused the moms to hold their babes in arms just a little bit tighter and made certain that the stroller was never left unattended, especially in the swine barn. Then, depending on the route, our steps usually took us to the entrance of the brightest and most colorful section of the fair, the Midway, filled with thrill rides, games of skill and chance, and sideshows, some featuring oddities of nature, others feats of daring, and others titillating reviews featuring scantily clad ladies. The family expeditions never ventured into that section if they cared at all about the nightmares it might conjure up later and the moral upbringing it might impede. The thrill rides were off-limits because, in the thinking of the mob squad, they had been hastily erected from truck trailers that had just rolled in from a fair in another state, and as my mother noted, who knows how many bolts did not get properly placed, nuts left off, and sections left on the truck. You know 12 people died in a malfunctioning merry-go-round over in Ohio. Following that annual rant, parents would relent to allowing the little ones one and only one ride in Kittyland. All those restrictions left the older ones still in tow to stand along the rails and just look bored. Maybe... Next year, they'd be granted the full run of the place, unencumbered by parents and family restrictions. We could only hope and long. Our steps following the brief encounter with the lights and sounds and smells of the Midway brought us around to the main drag of the fair, a wide thoroughfare that you reached from the outside by entering Gate 1, on foot, off of 38th Street, because you had parked in official fairground lots across the street, 
or in the yards of entrepreneurial residents who were willing to risk lawn appearance and trade for two weeks of multiple parking fees. This was true of about every neighborhood near and around the Ferris perimeter within walking distance of the pedestrian gates, with some days more lucrative than others. Those entering by Gate 1 joined the masses already in the event, creating a crowded bottleneck where parents needed to be extra vigilant that no children were swept up in the sea of humanity, only to be deposited in one of the animal barns. Remember the hog story. Fortunately, the crowd usually thinned out quickly as some headed back where we had been and others like us pushed ahead between the permanent buildings like the Home and Family Arts Building. It was in there that the endless rows of pies and cakes and table settings and quilts and draperies and all things that were handmade on the farm and on display. Most of which, to a 9 or 10 year old anyway, obviously had been made by ladies who had too much time on their hand because they didn't have television. The question that was always in my mind was, couldn't they just have gotten the same thing at Sears or Penny's or Montgomery Ward's? But unlike the barns, no row of this venue went unvisited, and no food under glass went unexamined. Adults commented on the winners with their ribbons, wondering and some definitely knowing that they could have made it better. In truth, when I finally was able to go to the fair without supervision and take it in with my buddies, we still made a pass through those rows very quickly, but it was in the last days of the fair, well after judging, just so we could witness the collection of mold and maggots and full-grown flies and roaches that crawled beneath the same glass over and around and in and out of the offerings, causing us to marvel at how the circle of life could be witnessed in such graphic detail, hastened by the heat and humidity that spoke of the final month of summer. This broad avenue outside also featured numerous pavilions open to everyone, and they were dedicated to things that the average household could not live without and maybe didn't even know existed. These were buildings that I had no desire to visit, but the parents couldn't wait to tour it. Now it was the parents' turn to have their first look at what was new and indispensable. Multiple buildings with rows and rows of items for home and garden, demonstrated and sold by smooth-talking salesmen, convincing moms, and in the case of a few booths, dads, that they needed to call their folks to sit with the kids and return another night to look more closely and perhaps even buy. Many an item sat in our basement unused, but ending up there because of the sales pitch that one or both of my folks had succumbed to. As one would imagine, this was a part of the fair experience where the kids were most restless. The exceptions came at the booths that featured kits of magic tricks for the junior magician. There were also the stands that sold boxed chameleons or boxed turtles, the latter bearing a painted logo of the Indiana State Fair on its shell. There were no goldfish in small bowls sold there. Those were the ones given away as prizes in the off-limits midway. Wise parents granted their kids only a quick look-see at the kits of lizards and terrapins for sale, reminding us that we hadn't even mastered the card tricks of the decks we bought with our own money the previous year, and of course the unceremonious passing of the living beings that we carried home one August before. Since our time listening to those hucksters were limited, 
Huckster, that was Dad's word for those who worked the sales shows. We suffered through the multiple pitches of those items that moms and dads leading the caravan wanted to see. Having perused these facilities, we then came upon the main crossroads of the 250 acres. This wide boulevard that ran right and left in front of us. It was the home of several small permanent buildings and a couple of impressive structures constructed of Indiana limestone and most closely made it resemble a city street in the midst of a rural setting. These, though, were the ones that housed the events that required tickets, events like concerts and racing. On the north side was the facade of the grandstands, which was the main bleachers for the dirt track and the outdoor concerts. And on the south side, the Coliseum, an indoor venue used year-round for a variety of entertainment events and throughout the two weeks of the fair. One more brick structure lined the north side of this main street, the communication building. In the case of the communication building, it was not toured except by special invite because it held the equipment necessary to conduct live remotes throughout the grounds with their various radio personalities. While some studios were where celebrities here for concerts and special events were interviewed and where those press conferences were conducted. Arrival at this point pretty much meant our actual tour of the annual event was winding down because it was at this point in the day at the fair that parents began to discuss the need to get these kids back home out of the heat if the day had begun during the a.m. hours or into bed if it had begun in late afternoon. There was still time to find a row of tables or a grass area in the picnic shelter. Once there, blankets were spread, coolers were emptied, and the contents were divvied out among the starving children. During their feeding and the snacking by the adults, discussions are held whether to check out the horse barns, but most years that was nixed in favor of getting the kids home to rest and if it was evening, bathed and in bed. We still needed to get our fair souvenirs and we'd do that on the way out. There were kiosks of memorabilia to choose from, all likely to be broken within a week, but for a couple of days anyway, we each would have some bright, shiny, often noisy item that we would even go to bed with, fondly reminding us of that magical day. Admittedly, we had not seen everything, but those of us older had seen enough to know that we couldn't wait until maybe next year, when we might be considered old enough and responsible enough to traverse the fairgrounds with buddies and without parental supervision. We were certain we could only then see the world of the Indiana State Fair in all its glory. Time would tell. Till then, we'd have to wait. The other saddening part of our trip to the fair was, when it was over, it meant that the fall term of another school year was right around the corner. Yes, there still may be some back-to-school clothes shopping, if it hadn't already been done in the sales earlier in the month. Certainly, there would be a search for school supplies that had been postponed until our new teachers gave us out their list. Wise families might have already secured the perfect lunchbox and thermos and crayon collections and three-ring binders, but the first day of school would arrive one day after Labor Day, the first 
Monday in September. Yep, summer was officially over. A new season awaited us. This episode has highlighted a child's eye view of the fair as experienced alongside of parents and siblings. The same 250 acres held some very different adventures in my upper elementary years and into junior high until I was 14. 14 was the magic age when a teen could gain employment at the various food stands throughout the grounds and possibly even one of the preferred jobs as an official employee of the State Fair Board. With that, the acreage known as the Indiana State Fairgrounds changed again as I became a trustee of sorts for what would go on within the fenced perimeter. Fortunately for you as a listener, you need only wait one installment to hear of the exploits occurring during those years. Episode 17 will be a chronological part two of my fair experiences, culminating in the day in 1964, September 3rd, when the fairgrounds experienced Beatlemania. Not once, but twice, and I had an up-close and personal seat for the frenzy. So follow Primrose Chronicle Facebook page to get the first notification, or follow the actual podcast on your favorite app, Apple or Spotify or the like. And please, let me know what you think. Now for me, it's time to re-enter the park and revisit its venues. Not really, just in my mind. But that's not really difficult because the fairgrounds are only a couple of blocks down from Primrose Lane, or Primrose Avenue. And maybe I'll see you there. Blessings.